Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in productivity and professional development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and happy to bring you experts who can guide you along your journey. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your feedback, and just excited to bring you weekly conversations like this one on topics that will help you along the way. Had a great conversation this week with Derek Feldman, author, researcher, speaker, and really a thought leader on every topic related to philanthropy and nonprofit leadership. I'm excited to bring you this episode because it, in fact, coincides with this week's release of his third book called The Corporate Social Mind. I've already ordered my copy, and of course, we'll have information in the show notes so you can get one yourself. Our conversation followed Derek's research over the last decade or so because it follows a path of topics that I think are particularly interesting and relevant to nonprofit leaders. Uh, Number one, we talked about millennial engagement. Uh, What is it? What drives it? And how do we find ways to engage this generation? And in fact, you may be surprised by some of the answers that Derek's research has uncovered. The second thing we talked about is what defines social movements for good? You know, it's more than just going viral. And Derek expands on that and some of the best practices that have achieved genuine success. And finally, his book topic, um, what do you as a nonprofit leader need to know about corporate engagement? And of course, his research, uh, as it is detailed in this book, should give you some really good insight as to those corporate and business partnerships you have now or are seeking. Don't forget to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 47. Just go to the podcast or the news page at PattonMcDowell.com. And you'll find all of the resources Derek and I discussed, uh, links to his books, as well as books he's recommended for our reading enjoyment, and of course, the great work he's doing with corporate and nonprofit organizations around the world. Speaking of resources, don't forget to check out our Mastermind program. If that is something you would be interested in, small group coaching in a virtual environment, we've got three different tracks emerging one for emerging leaders, in fact, those with less than five years' experience, uh, another senior leader cohort for those with five or more years, and a nonprofit explorer cohort for those of you in the for-profit realm who are contemplating jumping into nonprofit leadership. Well, back to this week's episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Derek Feldman. Derek, thank you for joining me on the path. Absolutely. Well, it's good to be with you, given this time that we're in together. So uh, thank you. Uh, Excited to dive into a number of topics with you. You've been a thought leader, Derek, ever since I've known you. And uh, certainly the philanthropy space benefits from your research and things that you have explored. So I'm excited that we're going to get to do just that. Before we get started, though, let's let's start, you know, kind of in summary. How'd you get into the philanthropy? And I guess for you, it's not just nonprofit, but philanthropy, marketing, and other spaces like that. Yeah, sure. I um, I think it kind of comes back to why do I care about social issues? And uh, it, it comes, my, my beginning starts from an experience I had really right out of college. For most, some will say, you know, in college I volunteered or was involved in all these causes and so forth. And 
in fact, that really wasn't my experience at all. Um, really? I wasn't this, yeah, I wasn't this overly active, heavily involved in every nonprofit organization, the, you know, the college president on these kinds of things. That, that really wasn't me. I was able to secure a governor's internship with the state of Illinois. Uh, and this was in, uh, you know, this was right in my second, third year of college. And so over the summer, um, I, uh, I ended up going into Springfield, Illinois at the time. I, I went to Southeast Missouri State. And so my university was incredibly excited to have a governor's intern. Right, and so they, right. gave me, they, they gave me a little time uh, in the spring to, to do this internship and, and also over the summer. And so I go into, um, I go into Springfield, Illinois, and it was really a, a, a big awakening for me. I mean, I, I grew up in a very small town in Southern Illinois called Aviston. Uh, and in this town of a thousand, literally a thousand, I mean, I left and that's what was on the, on the town plaque. Is that where a town of a thousand? Um, I, you know, I came from this pretty well-to-do community, very tight-knit, you know, very non-diverse. And so I go to, the, I go to Springfield as this experience, and the state of Illinois is a very interesting one. And for me, while I grew up in Southern Illinois, there was this sort of big city up in the north called Chicago. Yep. And, you know, I never really went there as a kid. I just didn't really experience it. And so my life or thinking of Illinois when I would get to Springfield would be this oh, we're dealing with the kind of people I grew up with. I mean, that's my bias that I came with. And I remember in the second week on the job, my boss said to me, here, weed through these and do a summary of the, the complaints that we're getting from residents outside Chicago um, related to some economic policy that we created. Wow. And I was like, oh, and so, you know, me just being the unknowledgeable device <laughs> person I am, I'm reading through these and I'm like, wow, this is just not the life I've ever experienced or known. And, and so from there, and when you're dealing and when you're put into a position where you're forced to listen to people, which by the way, is a leadership trait, most of us have a hard time doing. And even Good sometimes point. myself, I have to remind myself. But when you are sitting there reading, actually spending time to understand a person's problem with a policy or a person's problem with an issue, you start to get a bigger understanding that, you know, life is hard and it's not as easy as my life I grew up with. Is. Right. And, and so from that moment on, I realized that um, you know I, I wasn't necessarily interested in being in politics. I was more interested in helping people and understanding it. And right after that, I went to the School of Philanthropy. And, and um, during that time, I was actually a Hearst Fellow there at the School of Philanthropy. This is the early 2000s. And, and um, I, I started working on a project called Learning to Give, which is it was a Kellogg-funded initiative at the Council of Michigan Foundations. And the goal with, was to truly um, integrate within school systems and curriculum philanthropy education. And, and so my desire is to sort of address social issues and listen to people and be a part of that, you know, lend into the research side of things, coupled with my interest in young people, because right. this, is the, this is the formative years, right? This is the time that so many opinions and knowledge is either right or wrong starting to be embedded within our own thinking. And, and so that's kind of the two things that really sparked my, I would say, participation, engagement, and journey in this field. That's fantastic. 
and I knew your story. What I knew was already interesting, and that certainly fills in other areas that uh, kind of inspired you, obviously, for many years to come of research and, and things like that that we'll talk about within this uh, sector. I guess before I do that, though, Derek, I, you, you may know I ask all my guests uh, while we're all trying to deal with uh, work at home uh, efficiency and productivity, have you found any particular tips and tricks that help you manage, frankly, the volume of content that you're managing right now? <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I, I remember being in, and we were briefly talking about this before we got on, which is normally I'm in New York and DC and, and I commute. I'm a commuter from the Midwest, so right, I get both right. perspectives, which is, which is always funny when my colleagues who are in both of those cities are like, are you heading back to Minneapolis? I'm like, no, Indianapolis. And so it's <laughs> like, you know, we start having this conversations. And, and um, so I've always been on the road. I've always been traveling. And so this life, nothing really changed. Actually, what changed for me is being stationary for the first time in a very long time. Um, right. And I mean stationary within the same city, um, really for a, a concentrated time. And so for me, uh, what also happens is when, when and, and you have to understand from the research perspective, when moments like this happen, the stuff that we are dealing with, this is not a time to not do research, it's the time to double down. Uh, and so Good point. We, we Good end up point. doing way more than we ever would. And so it has been, the volume has been increasing. And, um, you know, I work on a project, I work on two global projects, um, one with Oxford and on Movement of Movements, and then another project um, uh, that we have, the Ad Council in Nivea and some other groups. And, and I wake up with a global perspective to try it and, you know, reading the things I do and working on meetings and all that and going all the way to six o'clock at night. And what, what I find the, the most uh, sort of ways to remain in this position of knowledgeable, not being overwhelmed, is making consistent breaks. And, and uh, two things in particular have helped me is that I, 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 I enjoyed the commute on a plane to something else, and I no longer had that. Right. And, and so my commute became, I, I bought a bike, and I decided that I was going to bike into work in Indianapolis. And I have a little sort of co-working space that I'm in. And and so that became my commute, uh, obviously not as long as the flight. And listening to podcasts are always, always a good one. And the other thing that I've been really spending my time with consistently is, is right now looking at sort of other fellow researchers who are in my field and, and finding and discovering new things that they've discovered over the course of two to three months. So I've spent more time with my research peers and colleagues than I ever have before when I was traveling. And while I'm not working on those things, I, I get asked, I, I ask them, you know, hey, I have a question. And, and so providing peer support to my fellow peers has been a way for me, quite honestly, to get away from my own daily and to try to help others at the same time. So it's been, it's been really rewarding. That's great. So despite the isolation, in some ways, literally, we're feeling you found it's a, an opportunity to reach out even more. It has been. It has been. I, I, I remember that first two to three weeks where I said, I don't know why we haven't done this for so long. <laughs> right, and, right. And, and while, you know, and, and there were things that when, you know, when you're doing research, you like people to review your stuff afterwards. And I was like, what? You know, I, I'm going to send it to him right before or we're going to do some other things. And so it's been really, really good. Um, for for me personally to reconnect with my research colleagues and academic colleagues than I ever have before. That's fantastic. And again, I'm glad that 
that brings even more knowledge right to our worlds if we are able to network effectively and communicate with the uh, the peer group that's around us. And frankly, I agree with you. I think a lot of us, we take that for granted or we don't follow it as we should. Uh, so I'm excited, I guess, not only the knowledge you're going to bring to this conversation, but those that you have come in contact with. Um, any one of these three, Derek, we could probably delve into for a long time. But I thought we'd try to summarize that I believe the nonprofit leaders that listen to this podcast would be particularly interested in number one, your decade-long study of millennials. And so we can talk about that kind of engagement. And number two, the, the, the research you've done on social movements that work. And I guess that's my uh, paraphrase of that, and you'll <laughs> expand further. Um, and then I'm excited to, to hear more about your new book and uh, the corporate social mind, which we'll certainly include in our show notes. And I want to hear some of the origins there and how, again, nonprofit leaders might benefit from that. So starting with the first one, as the parent of three millennials myself, I hope you're going to help me figure them out. <laughs> and uh, uh. <laughs> I, I know I, that's probably an unfair question, isn't it? But uh, there are misconceptions, aren't there, Derek? I think in nonprofit leaders' minds about, you know, how and why millennials want to engage with causes. Are they entitled? Are they flaky? And all these kind of negative connotations. But tell me, what do nonprofit leaders need to know about millennials? Yeah, and, I, and, and maybe uh, I'll start with sort of the journey that I had myself with, Perfect. The, with the research project. Yeah. Um, so for some of your listeners who may not know, I, I had the lucky opportunity, and quite honestly, in the research field, to be a researcher where I had a funder underwrite it for a decade is just not heard of, quite wow. honestly. So, so I was I was definitely in that, and and I give a lot of credit, a lot of credit to the the really the work and the interest by Gene and Steve Case and the Case Foundation because they were instrumental in ensuring this and really saw it early on as well the need to try to understand how a generation who at that time was coming in and, and the largest was really, really going to potentially shape the nonprofit sector. And, and one thing that I think is really important when we get into the generational conversation that, that is unfortunate that happens when you start talking about generations, good, bad, ugly, comparatives, whatever yep. they are, yep. is, is that, and, and this happens so much in the fundraising field, I've discovered is that we've got thought leaders and consultants and others who will say, you know, your young, your young donor is the old donor and all this other stuff. That's true. I, you know, that, that is not, that is really not ever been our purpose. Our purpose from the beginning was to understand the evolution of a millennial as they get involved in social issues. Really, when they were starting to come of age, you know, when we started this, we, we really captured data 12, 13 years ago. We didn't start publishing until the 10th, you know, two, right. a year or so in. And so for us, it was never about to say one is better than the other, but rather, Let's try to, as much as possible, understand one's actions. And if we can, let's try to understand if those will change and dramatically shift things. And, and so for 10 years, we spent our time trying to answer a couple critical questions. And, and the first one being around, you know, what are they actually really doing? A lot of surveys at that time, and this was you know, 12, 13 years ago, really focused on nonprofits telling us what they were hearing. Right. And the challenge of that is that we, it's not original source research, you know, and it's not really not getting into what we should. And, and so we spent from that time in there doing mixed methods. We were doing qualitative and quant, 
ethnography, all different tracking social mentions, tracking as much as we could to try to understand one social issue engagement. And as we started out in the early days, we, like many others, started in a traditional sense. And in that traditional sense, it was uh, the typical traditional ways causes at that time were really promoting an issue engagement. And that was through being a donor, being a volunteer, taking these roles that were really, really defined. And so our early reports were really focused on those. And, and about two to three years in, you know, I, we're sitting around the table um, and my colleagues and I, um, and by the way, I should give credit to all of them, Dr. Amy Thayer and Melissa Wall and other people that have been involved in a lot of this with me. Cindy Dashnow and others in the research, we, we're sitting around and we're talking about that this mentality of being a donor or a volunteer didn't really exist how so many people were telling us about that it should, right? So for instance, if I was to go to a nonprofit right now and said, how, how are things going? Well, yeah. we don't have enough money because our donors are not coming out that way, or I don't have enough volunteers or something that way. And so you start to get the perception that we have these categories of people that exist around our causes. Right. And when we were spending time with younger demographics, millennials in particular at that time, we never heard that kind of vernacular language. That was language that was used by our field, right? And that right, happens a, right. lot, a lot in other fields. But in this case, one of the key things that we discovered is that a lot of a lot of millennials at that time were taking a sort of a supporter mentality is i am a supporter of an issue you are one outlet for me the nonprofit organization you are not the outlet and i think that that's a shift that made some people a little nervous good point right because the, because then it makes me think my organization in particular is going to lose funding it's when it's like well is me i'm disappointed in this generation not seeing the value in the nonprofit when at the same time, if we were in the corporate world and I said, well, you are a product, but you still have to not only maintain relevance, you have to maintain importance and other things, it's a totally different conversation. And so one of the things that we started to talk further about is what does it mean to be a supporter? We, and so early, it's sort of like that midstream, about four to five years in, we shifted to try to understand what it means to be a supporter if you're in this demographic of a social issue. And what we commonly found is that quite honestly, donations was only really 9% of my total actions. It was really small. Wow. And I was vo voicing my opinion and I was voting. I, and, and you know, when you are asking and, and hearing and listening to young people and you said, what is the best way that we can tackle this issue? They weren't coming and saying, you know what? It's my $25. They would say, I've got to vote somebody out. Or I have to get somebody to hear the problem and understand it as well. So what we discovered sort of midstream was this disconnect between what it means to be a supporter, what, how nonprofits themselves would define it, and what it really meant for millennials. And we started to talk about that. And I remember two, two media articles came out at that time, you know, really negative towards what we were finding in there. And I was like, <laughs> it, it is what it is. I can't change what the what it is. So so in that sense, we wrote this whole thing around, if you're a nonprofit, here's how you should consider to to sort of lean into the supporter mentality. The 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 other key thing that that we really looked at is is that, you know, millennials in particular, and this goes out with any generational study, 
is I always like when we like to say a generation is solely responsible for something. Right. Because that right. usually isn't the case. And I want to take the way of public transportation for just a minute. Um, it is very well documented and very well researched. The public's different perception, attitude, and behavior when it comes to public transportation. We, through the history of our country, some have moved in, and because this public transportation became a new opportunity, people were taking it all the time. Then cars, we started to move out to suburbs, and our mentality shift, like why would you now take that when you can drive? I mean, I remember when I moved to a city, my parents, remember, I came from the small town, said, why would you ever take a bus? Ever. I cannot imagine it. <laughs> right. right. And now young people are like, well, why wouldn't I? You know, and so we, and that comes from different changes that happen in society that change our behavior. Right. But it usually is also gradual change that happens with others. So, so for instance, millennials didn't wake up one day and said, you know what, we're demanding work-life balance. They're Gen X, quite honestly. We should be thankful to them because they started this process and so did boomers, quite honestly, because they had kids and were struggling with work-life balance themselves as they were going through some of these challenges in the formative years. It just so happened that we have a big generation coming in, learned as well what it means. And so when we see some of those things happen, always think, I hope your listeners read and, and, and hear this point in particular, that the behavior that we have is usually based upon other things, circumstances, environment, known and knowledge and history, the place that we grow up and so forth. It isn't just all of a sudden one day they wake up and decide this is the case that we're going to happen right. this way. And so in particular, when it comes to millennial social issue engagement, and as we were doing the, I mean, we started when there were, you know, Facebook and MySpace were the big things. And it was the Facebook at that time. That just shows you when, when we were getting things done. We're dated How, here, right? Yeah. 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 And then, you know, we went through the Obama, the election of Obama and then, you know, the, into the Trump administration and so forth. So, I mean, we've seen it all in 10 years is a long time. And as I was going through that, the latter parts, we were starting to really understand and see that young people, in order to be heard, and in order to sort of help persuade others, the most influential thing they could ever do was use their voice. And they were doing that through platforms, these new technologies that just didn't exist before. Right. And, and while I could paper sign a petition, it was just so different that I could share that opinion and use my voice. And so some of the fundraising field would look at that and be like, oh, there's the demise of fundraising. No, because it, the point. it isn't. Yeah. yeah, that's not, that isn't the point. And, and to be quite honest, if it means I'm a supporter, I'm doing all of these things. I'm a volunteer and a donor, and I'm a big vocal advocate, and I care about this issue, and I'm gonna vote for people who care about that issue, and I'm gonna to talk to my friends about it, I'm gonna do it this way. And if you're a cause that fights for any issue, and that's your mission, you should love and embrace that kind of idea. Unfortunately, because we're in the traditional notion of what it means to be involved, we see declines in just donations and volunteerism right, right. as our indicators. I cut you but, off. Go ahead. No, no, sorry. I, I, I got excited by that point. And I, so the mistake we as nonprofit leaders have made is maybe too narrowly defining this millennial generation by, by donor metrics. And your point is we need to look at it from their perspective, which is as a supporter, it's much more than donation. Is that always, fair? always. Absolutely. And I'll give you two cases in particular. And, and by the way, I sit on the School of Philanthropy board. So we always have that. I have this dialogue <laughs> with yeah. Dr. Pasek and I 
I mean, we, we go through this back and forth in a very healthy relationship, of course. And so, right, right. Um, the, you know, if you look at the ways that we track giving uh, in the ways that, that people really give, we're getting into the conscious, unconscious, trackable, untrackable environments, which tends to be a gray area. We would always in our studies find more people were giving because there's so much that's not tracked. Um, things like the one cent roundup that I'm doing, the unconscious behaviors because of my upbringing of helping one another, we find that millennials are very philanthropic. They're just not maybe doing it in the trackable conscious ways or the systems that we were always using. I mean, peer fundraising in and of itself through GoFundMe and other platforms is not tracked in the way that we right, have tracked right. other kinds of things. And the other thing that's really, really key here too is saying a generation's not philanthropic and looking at what has happened over the course of the last two to three to four years in all of the ways that they have. Because if I'm correct, the definition of philanthropy is time, talent, and treasure, and not just the treasure part, <laughs> I would right. say they're fairly philanthropic overall. It's just that when it comes to the financial part, in the traditional sense, we are not seeing in that kind of measurement year over year for the last however many years in the same way. So therefore, we're thinking that people are unengaged. But quite honestly, there are lots of organizations that see great uptick in participation. And I think we've seen that even in the course of the last two to three months when it comes to COVID and now Black Lives Matter. Uh, it's great points. And so as a nonprofit leader, uh, are there takeaways? In other words, acknowledging the supporter mindset? What can I do to, again, engage these millennials? One, I guess it is to simply acknowledge the things you just shared. Well, I think it's two parts. If I'm a nonprofit leader, you have to recognize two really important things. You can't ever focus on millennial engagement if your engagement overall first is flawed. Um, I always like it when I get the phone call like, Derek, we're going to focus on millennials. And then when we get under the hood, well, nobody has really been engaged with the organization <laughs> for the last two to three years. Right. Millennial, right. Millennials are not going to save you. I hate to tell you that, but that's not going to happen. And then they get disappointed when millennials aren't. The, so the, the first thing, by the way, is to look at it and say to ours, how will we lift up those that want to support our issue? That is a very critical question. Yep. If you say, well, yep. we are going to do that for those that donate and volunteer to us, you have a very, very narrow-minded environment, especially in an age where using one voice is very, very powerful right now. And so the other thing that I would say is, is when are we going to let our constituencies start to be more vocal and, make, and create more ownership over their own engagement and involvement, and we support them. And that means doing a lot of self-organizing activities, peer engagement, creating, creating the platform for people to have conversations with one another. You know, I you know, work a little bit with Feeding America, I work with Truth and all these other organizations, and we talk about what are we going, how will we create a message that allows somebody to have that conversation with another about how Jewel is trying to get them or something right, else. Right. You know, you have to look at it from that perspective because dollars follows that kind of participation within the social issue. And the other thing that I see with this as others do, uh, as, as we have sort of tracked is, is around the table, not just having our fundraisers and our marketers, but also having our advocacy teams and others and saying, we all are fighting for that same involvement from that one person. We Great all point. want each of these departments to win. We want that person to donate, we want them to volunteer, we want all of that. 
we need to be in alignment of what it truly means to be engaged at this level, to this level, and this level, and what we really want people to act upon and not act upon, and find the right moments to double down on our donation request or our time or bringing in other constituencies as well. So, so for you, I think, and for most of the nonprofit leaders, is to sit around and say, first, what does it truly mean to be involved with us? Because I often find that, our le that sometimes leaders are biased towards those that are overly involved, and that's yep. really not the population. Yep. And then secondly, follow it up with a conversation that says, with we're looking at the, the person that we want to be involved, what nudges are we doing for them to feel like they own this issue and that they don't, that they're not just us, but rather that this issue, because we will win when that organization, when that person says, not that they do good work, but they really helped me understand, or they got me to, uh, gave me the resources to talk to others and get them involved and so forth. There isn't a person in this world that doesn't want to make, that doesn't want to try to see or create an opportunity with their peers and friends um, in a way that says, look at this organization and look at this issue. I want you to come and see the importance that I do. Everybody desires everybody to have their networks focus on something that they care about. Let's equip them with those kinds of things. Yeah, that's great advice, Derek. And, and as organizations, again, if we fall victim to the silo effect, which I do agree with you, I see a lot in nonprofits, we silo into marketing or fundraising or something like that. And of course, you're advocating for a much more organizational strategy, right? Because it is all part of the same thing. But I would say a lot of organizations simply don't do that. Yeah. You, you created something, Derek, and, and I think related, the, the Millennial Engagement Platform. Can you talk about that? And is, is that, how does that fit into maybe the mix that we're discussing? Absolutely. So at that time, this is kind of in the first book, was around called, called, it was called Cause for Change. Um, this was sort of midstream between, um, this sort of mid, mid that fifth year, sixth year mark overall. Uh, and around that time, we were, we were trying to create an assessment tool and a framework. And, and a lot of that has changed since then because so many new things have happened and occurred. But essentially, that platform talks about how, is, how uh, is the voice of the brand, the voice of young people being represented. And it's not necessarily that we have a youth board, which everybody at that time was really focused on. Right. Um, it was more about, well, we need to have diverse boards in general. How are youth a part of that or the youth voice or a younger voice? And when I say younger at that time, we were talking about 20s and early 30s. And most obviously the expectation of giving is a challenge one for some younger people, but they do give and participating at those levels is, is key. Um, because I think every board and every cause needs to be representative of the population in general. And that includes diversity as well, which is obviously right. a challenge that we have. And so that was in there. And the, the other thing is, is there were some principles in there, such as, is it brand first of the cause or is it the voice of people as the cause? And you'll see some of the most effective movements, causes and organizations elevate the voice of the constituency as the deliverer versus the brand. Everybody wants brand recollection, right? Um, in, in the marketing world, um, we sort of call that whether it's aided, aided brand awareness versus non. I mean, everybody wants to be the brand that everybody goes to, right. but that's not really how the public looks at it, right? They're like, oh, I want to give to hunger. I decided to give to these organizations in general. Your value in this overall is how people view your organization ability to help them address the issue. 
that's a really, you're the conduit through all of this. And so we talk about a lot of that in the framework, which is, are you positioning as the organization that people are doing this for you, or are you letting their voice be the lead uh, in this overall? So there were a couple of those pieces in there uh, in general. And, and we've learned a lot um, since sure, that time sure. too. But it's but those are the primary components of, of most of that engagement. Like for instance, any solicitation that we have done with young people has always come from young people and not the brand. It never has, yeah, we have never, in the voice of young people, we started to, and some of the most effective organizations do this that we work with as well. I mean, when you go to say the Truth site, um, if you go to Liberty North Korea, you go to Surfrider, you see all of the voice of that brand is from the surfing community and people. It's not from the brand itself, and it's representative that way. And I think one of the one of the things that's that's really really important to kind of see out of all of this is our brand is important, but the people that represent our brand are even more important when they're talking about it, and we want to lift up those as much as possible. Yeah, and, and not to state the obvious, but it it it's, strikes me as a very peer to peer kind of appeal. Right? So. It, it's not my parents' organization or the brand of some other generation. It's people like me that are exactly, and that makes such good sense and. Well, it's a good segue, I guess, again, to another area you have delved into, Derek, of uh, social movements for good. Um, again, every nonprofit dreams of going viral, but maybe you can speak <laughs> to <laughs> that. Yeah. One, is that a reality? And, and perhaps there are other perspectives one should take if we are leading a nonprofit on that, uh, in that space. Yes, uh, absolutely. So um, I'll talk a little bit about why the why we moved in that direction as well. So when you're doing a decade long research, right? So um, kind of continuing the, the journey, and and, uh, and so the beginning was to understand what was happening, and then we started to see that there was a different perspective that they were having and the roles that they were having with causes, right? So we talked about that now, and then. After that, there were a lot of movement style uh, elements. So movements have always been a part of our history. But um, young people, when you start to observe their participation, they would participate in some movements this way. And so as we started to, um, as we started to go through that, including the HRC, LGBTQ law, all of that stuff was happening too during this time. We started to look at and observe our, our individuals through our research and what they were doing, including even political movements like the right. Obama campaign and, and even 2016 as well with the Trump administration's election with their movement. And so um, we did research on sort of that because, we, because it was happening before us and within us and during our research time. So the book Social Movements for Good, which I talked through there, the major premise of that, what we were trying to understand from the research was how were these movements happening from the individual's perspective of involvement? And there were a couple key things that occurred. And, and the virality part of this happened when we noticed a couple key components. And I talk about these, um, uh, and I, I lead an effort, I kind of mentioned it earlier, with uh, Charmaine Love at Oxford, at the Said Business School. And um, it's called Movement to Movements, where we're understanding the theories of dynamic change that happen within movements globally. And we're tracking movement theory across many different SDGs. And in, in, in that research project and in the book, I talk about that we have this, this sort of two kinds of movements. We have cultural movements and policy movements. 
So policy movements are those movements that focus on obviously policy change. But just because you have a policy change doesn't necessarily mean that we have cultural change, right? And that's right, something that right. the Black Lives Matter movement right now is doing a very good job talking about the difference. We not only need policy change, but we need behavior change. You, individual as a white person or others, the discrimination and the racial inequality that's occurring. Right. So those two, those two kinds of things exist. And so when we think about the HRC movement and others that was happening, there were a couple key pieces. Virality didn't happen overnight. Most of the movements that we were tracking and that participation, they were spending years and years worth of work on the ground building constituencies and creating many milestones as victories and wins. I mentioned Surfrider. I hope you all visit their website, Surfrider Foundation. I mean, they got the surfing community to kind of come out and help them get involved in some environmental policy issues. They always talk about victories and milestones. You as a movement have to create short-term victories. I always love these. By 2030, by 2040, like all these kinds of... <laughs> Too that's far. That's great. Yeah, far I mean, who anticipated between when they created those 2030 goals, a pandemic, right? And so, exactly. And so from there, it's, you know, what these movements were successful because they had very clear mini milestones that were adopted by the public, right? And we're seeing that right now with a narrative of defund the police. It's a, very, it's, a, it's, a, it's a narrative that's easily adopted. I'm gonna talk about one of the books later on that I feel like all of your listeners should read. Sure. It's around narrative economics. But in, and when we see narratives this way with movements, it happens and occurs when you have a very simple adoption of a narrative of change that has to happen. Near term change? Most, I mean, the, the timeline exactly. is critical, right? Very, very critical. And one of the things that Surfrider or other movements do very successfully is they're very clear about the steps towards social change. So for instance, they will say, I need you to sign this petition right now because on Thursday, we're gonna go visit with that legislator and have this conversation. I need your name on that petition. Wow. We wanna show that you are standing with us. Will you do it? And then what happens on Friday is that, guess what? I shared this with you. And by the way, that message doesn't come from the brand. It comes from a fellow advocate that looks yes. and feels just like yes. that. And that makes me excited and says, hey, I'm gonna be back in touch in two weeks when we try to hit our next milestone, I'm so glad that you're a part and you believe the same thing I do that we should have say a $15 minimum wage, which by the way, one of the movements we highlight was Fight for 15, one of the most successful movements globally that persuaded so many companies to push towards higher minimum wage. And when you look at it, the Fight for 15 narrative and the very simple demand that they were trying to go for was very clear for people to adopt easily uh, as well. So, so good, adoption- <clears throat> and, and Sorry to interrupt you, but it- it's because they didn't say it, it, we're going to get it in 10 years. Again, to no. reinforce the point, it was, here's yeah. something you can do now. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they made every action the person took meaningful and part of the larger process. I, I, wrote, an, I wrote an article one time. Um, it's called, um, I think uh, impact has lost its impact. In, in, our, <laughs> in, in our field, in our field, we loved it. Like that word impact, I swear, oh, yeah. if, it had, oh, yeah. if, it had, if it had a publicist, they should be, there would be a billionaire at this point. <laughs> um, so when we talk about impact, we always look at it in reverse, right? And the other thing about impact is that we're looking at it not from the sense of how the, the people that I have surrounded myself in research look at it. So for instance, when we're talking to millennials in particular, when we're talking to young people and I'm saying, well, so, you know, you just gave $20. Is your expectation that this is going to save the world or what, you know, like we're trying to understand where the expectation is. 
And there never has been that expectation. The problem that, or the, the challenge that I hear from causes that do, do address the millennials that have come forward who want lots of engagement or all these other things tend to be the actual outlier. The vast majority of young people are very similar to other public. They're not as active and engaged. You're probably, so you're surrounding yourself with some of the outliers who are probably overly involved in social issues and so forth. And they're probably overly active on so many different ways that they're sending these signals to you that they have high expectations. The vast majority, and I wrote this in the article, that we have researched through the years, I and mean, we had more than 200,000 people going through our studies, that we found that all they wanted to know is that progress was made. Progress was made on what we're talking about. Nobody believes that, they, that we were studying to said, you know what, if I give you $10, that tomorrow the world is different. Um, and most of it had come from really this sense of that progress was made. And I'll give you one thing in particular that we, that we, that we heard about and, and observed firsthand. One day there was a, one day there was a um, sort of high, we, again, we were following panels of people. And there was one day that we looked at something in a, and a lot of people had signed a petition all at once. And it was like, if you sign this, global hunger ends tomorrow kind of thing. Like the narrative was so crazy. Like wow. nothing, you know, that's not going to happen, obviously. Right, right. Um, and so when we're looking at it, it, you know, when you have a panel of say a thousand people and you're monitoring behavior, randomized panel, and you find that say a hundred of them do something all at the same time, random, it, there's a correlation. Like that's really intri intriguing. So we looked at it and in, we took them out and we started asking them, I think, did you honestly believe world hunger ended today? No, the answer was clearly no. I just wanted to be a part of something and vocalize my association with the issue through that petition. Right. And so right. these kinds of things are really, really important because when it comes to your, the leaders that are listening now, you have to help build people up their identity to your issue. Help them feel proud and confident to be a part of the issue with you as well. And so progress like that, that kind of, um, that kind of email that I just talked about earlier, where you send it and say like tomorrow, I want you, I want to have your voice there to be heard, right? Sign it. It makes it so immediate. It makes it so personal and it makes it so such in a way that I, why wouldn't I in this moment, if I believe in our issue that's going on. And so movements that are very successful in creating that kind of tone and culture with their constituents do quite well. Uh, and I talk about that in, in that piece. I find the ones that quite honestly never went viral, even though they had lots of money and the ones that had lots of media support and others, or they were short-lived, were the ones that really never spent time developing a constituency on the ground before they went to quote-unquote launch or used a moment in that piece. They weren't really prepared to offer milestones for people, to have a really good public narrative that was adopted by, by regular people and well understood, and quite honestly could see change happen very in a short amount of time frame. I and mean, that's what we want to see happen with our movements. I love that, Derek. And it just strikes me as a practical matter that if I'm a nonprofit leader, as much as long range planning is important, they'd be almost better served to look at their near term engagement calendar, for lack of a better term, right? Where, what are the milestones our constituents can engage with us and feel progress every month, right? Or some much more near term timeline. Exactly. Well, in, and I think it also comes down to leaders, especially your CEOs. You know, and I, I um, 
whenever I work with a nonprofit cause or a university, I always love this doing with the university presidents too. Um, I, I always ask for it. I need to have like an hour, just private hour together. And um, even when a university president getting an hour is like, you know, in two months, you know, kind of thing. I'm like, no, exactly. I'm like, this is a, if this is a serious thing, we should connect now. And one of the first questions I ask for them is what is your agenda right now? If it's a cause on the issue, like what is your agenda this year? What do you want to, uh, what do you want to have this organization accomplish for the issue? Yep. And notice I didn't ask what, how many donations do you want to get in? I didn't ask anything else because what we have to do and much more effectively is link what our agenda is on the issue right now in the short term to the actions that we want our constituents to take with us. And that should involve fundraising and donations, but they can only link those two when we as an organization are very clear on what we should accomplish this year, this year for our issue right. because of our constituency. And so, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I'll even ask them a question around what do you want a constituency to share on social media about the issue this year and what they did. And it takes them some time to answer it. I and I'm bet like, there's an aha moment there for sure. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of them are like, well, um, a lot of it, the, the typical response historically would be is that we were the organization that made it possible. And I'm like, no, 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 it's not about you. Yes. This is about them feeling yes. it, right, in general. So, so, I, um, so now when I talk to a lot of organizations, universities, and, and I do work with corporate brands uh, as well. And unfortunately, I can't talk too much about them, but from retailers in young space to, right, um, right. to technology companies, and all of them are in the same place, even on their social issues. You know, it's, it, it, it comes into this, this sort of, I would really like to see the constituent or the person see that we helped either further their advancement and knowledge on the issue, or at least gave them the ability to make an action happen that they have been wanting to do on something like this. And so I think a lot of that action can be obviously donations, but it also means using your organization's platform to be the voice of what you're talking about. I mean, let people over, you know, use your platforms from whether that's simply as asking somebody to be your, um, you know, to overcome your Instagram for the day, to share right. their thinking, to right. anything else. I mean, all of these are simple solutions. Love it. And Derek, it's just fun to, to ride along on your research journey <laughs> over the last decade. <laughs> and, and I guess see some of the building elements and the intersection of your research topics. And, and I guess, is it fair to say that corporate social mind or, or is, is that a different kind of line of research you were hoping to pursue? Or indeed, is there connectivity? Well, there's always connection. So we, yeah. were, nearing, we were nearing our 10-year journey. And, uh, you know, when you were doing a, a study for 10 years, two things that happened in the Millennial Impact Project, which is the, the study. And, and, um, and, and in that project in particular, I mean, millennials are older. I always love millennials are being characterized as young. I want to be very clear. <laughs> right. They're not as young as we all think. And I mean, when you're with the, studying a demographic, going looking at social issue engagement for a decade, I mean, these people are getting jobs, they're advancing in careers, they're leading companies, they're entrepreneurs, they're having kids, they're moving out to the suburbs, they're doing all these things that we don't, we, we in our mind, when we think millennial or Gen Z, we think of like the 17 and 18 year old constantly, and that's not true. Good you know, point. they're up to 40 uh, at this point or close to it. And so to, at, the, at the end of the journey of the research journey, this is you know, two years to close. So right after the Trump administration, you know, we have gone to that research and we had released research in general. 
something else that happened is we started to see, and in particular that happened in those in that in the voting campaigns, is that we saw a lot of companies getting involved in movements and social issues. And while and, and I'm not necessarily saying that companies weren't involved in social issues. There were, like their foundations right. and their CSR. We were seeing a lot of marketing and corporate brands getting involved in activating younger audiences to get involved in either voting or social issue campaigns and everything else. And while the Ad Council has had tons of engagement of that um, through history, this was really getting heightened, really sort of that sixth year into the research and on. And so as we were wrapping it up, uh, the, the last 10 years, um, I had already started, before we sort of put the sort of seal that we're done and, and published the last reports, we had already begun looking at the corporate space in particular. And I was really interested in, because the, the first 10 years were really focused on what was happening and we kind of got a grasp on that. But there was one thing that was starting to change what was happening and that was influences in social media, news, media in general, influencers were being very influential in how actions were being taken. Right. And so we, we, we noticed that already in our research and said, this is the next area of exploration. Not so much what, but why it's occurring as it relates to influences. So we launched the new research project two years ago, which is called Cause and Social Influence. And we really look at and you can go to the website and I'll share that. You can share that with your listeners. And sure, we, sure. We look, that's an annual, um, we do it through many different moments. As I mentioned earlier, we double down on research. Um, through different movements and moments throughout the year, we, um, we always look at, a, we survey and look at data related to our panels and samples of young Americans, 18 to 30. We're not tied to a generation anymore. And looking at how brands, companies, how government, how um, social media, news networks, influencers, celebrities are all influencing actions by younger populations where a lot of the entertainment sort of side happens. Right. And so um, that led to looking at brands and a lot of that research. So the corporate social mind came out of that. Also um, working with a lot of companies to from really to try to help them not only connect with young people, not from a consumer standpoint, but also connect with them on social issues. There were a lot of challenges. There have been a lot of mishaps that happened. Uh, unfortunately, I still get calls like we tried something and either didn't work or even a big brand who said, hey, we really messed up. I mean, that does happen now. It's mostly, I think a lot of people have learned. And so a lot of that, you know, the calls that we can now get are more around, you know, we're interested in diving into say mental health and young people. What do you think and what do you know? And and so we spent a lot of time developing either campaigns or efforts with that they could couple it uh, together. So nice. that led to the book. And what was really important for me on that book is that uh, that wasn't focused on a U.S. perspective, but rather an international perspective. So uh, a fellow colleague and business partner of mine, Michael Alberg Sieberich, who's based in Berlin, he um, owns a company called Wider Sense, which does a lot of corporate social impact engagement work with big brands in Europe and, and throughout the EMEA. And, and he and I wrote the book together. It's coming out by Fast Company uh, here on July 7th. Nice. Uh, and so um, it really talks about these seven to eight traits that we witnessed in companies who were successful in their social issue engagement, um, which I talk about listening to consumers and their social issue challenges, which Nike does really, really well, by the way, even though you may not agree with the stance they take, they spend a lot of time in the consumer insight side trying to understand where their, where their consumers stand on some of their social issues. And so um, we talk about all of that in the book, but I really come at it from the sense of 
of the sort of marketing communications and engagement side, Michael comes at it from the impact side and from the international perspective. So it's, it's been a really fun book. We, we started it um, and it really came out of years of us working together on some other brand work like with Siemens and, and others that I've done in Europe. And, and it, it's been helpful to kind of look at different instances outside of the US and in particular, where populations may be more attuned to some social issues than Interesting. not uh, right. as well. So, so that's kind of led to the Corporate Social Mind. And in fact, we'll be releasing the Corporate Social Mind report research piece on the same day as the book launch uh, to coincide together. And so it's on the 7th. And, and interestingly enough, we're in a time, I will give you a little bit of hint as to what we've discovered the public expectation of the company to get involved in social issues is, is really high. And in fact, to be vocal about issues and opinions, and that may be for a lack of certain things occurring in society right now. And, and, and also in the sense that we have several big issues in which that they're asking companies to rethink the way that they've historically done processes, to have a mindset that's different, um, that looks at society before just making decisions, given that not just for employees, but for how people are affected by race and bias, and as well as how the environment and others. And so it's a unique time. And so communicating to others about that time is, is really what we talk about in the, in the report and, and also how, how all kinds of Americans are interested in, in getting involved with companies and to tackle these issues. Yeah, it's exciting. And of course, I'm excited to lift up the book, the report. In fact, this episode uh, will go live, Derek, that week. So hopefully it will coincide with all of the excitement of this uh, yeah. publication and the things that you are doing on that front. And yeah, I guess it's circling back to the from the nonprofit standpoint, obviously nonprofits are always trying to better engage their corporate sponsors and supporters and philanthropists who come from these companies. But is it simply a matter of just paying attention to the social causes that these companies now are espousing? Um, you, you mentioned like a mental health. So if I'm a mental health nonprofit, is that the kind of clue I'm looking for? Or what advice might you offer the nonprofit leader trying to better engage with the corporate community? So I want to tell you about an experience I, I had with a brand um, recently in the last, this was actually before recently, boy, this is where time really morphs a little bit. This was, <laughs> yeah, it all runs together. It all runs yeah, together, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. So I'm going to say this is actually pre-pandemic because uh, this was in February. Um, I, I was with this brand and, and I can always sense, especially in the corporate world sometimes, when we start talking about things where we haven't necessarily experienced it firsthand. Yep. And by the way, CEO leaders who are listening, you need to spend time with your beneficiaries without your program people and just real time and just understand and hear directly because Great sometimes point. things are filtered um, to you. And so the marketing team was going to tackle this issue, um, pretty big issue. And I said, uh, so you know, I'm reading this report that you did, which is a consumer insights thing. A lot, you know, a lot of brands have really great consumer insights in the house, but these are people who are already with them and, and, and so forth. And I said, have you actually talked to anybody that's experiencing this firsthand? You know, and so I brought the team to a nonprofit organization that set up something that allowed five or seven of the people that are experiencing the issue. Uh, fortunately, I can't talk too much about what that issue is and sure, sure. Might, might know what the brand is. And so they bring them into the room and we spent two hours over a meal just talking. 
And hearing firsthand their experiences, challenges, their family life because of it, what was life before. And so, and it just gives you different perspective. So my advice to nonprofits is while of course you should always ask for support is how are you building knowledge? How will you help companies understand the issue that you are dealing with? I find that some of the conversations are focused on volunteering, corporate volunteers and all this other ways. Be, be a utility when it comes to issues and so forth. You know, in that, in that corporation, I said, this nonprofit, we need to, they need to, they need to be with us as we design this. We need to give them some resources to make sure that they can sit at the table as we look at this campaign in general. And the more that we do that means the more that we will actually get a chance to truly understand what's happening. Because nonprofits have so much knowledge, experience, institutional work that's been done through years. This is a time to help, especially if you're working in areas like mental health and race and all other kinds of things. So look at it and say, I want to build and develop a relationship with companies that looks that we are seen as a thought leader for them as somebody that brings knowledge and other opportunities to address the issues that they may care about. That's fantastic. And you're right. We're guilty sometimes as nonprofits of only coming at it from the transaction of financial support, but you're suggesting that we are a resource to many of these corporate leaders. If we can kind of package our knowledge and serve as a conduit. And I think that's something we can in nonprofit do much better. I, I work with a very large national nonprofit that you all know, and I always say to the CEO, I said, I, we're going to go visit with companies and we're not going to have any requests. We're just going to talk about some things we're seeing just so that they know, just exactly. so that they understand exactly. what's going on. Yeah, love that. Um, Derek, you've been fantastic on every topic, as I knew you would be. Um, a, a final question, I suppose, and, and you run into this a lot. You see talented nonprofit leaders. Uh, is there advice you would offer someone who is pondering, in fact, getting on the nonprofit leadership path as you have kind of experienced a lot of excellence in that category? Uh, I would say, you know, uh, as you go through, you are going to discover uh, the art of being a stakeholder manager as well. And it's really hard. It really, really is hard. And as you start to surround yourself with people that tend to be some of your biggest donors, your biggest supporters, your biggest volunteers. They all tend to be attracted to you because yep. they love the issue and they love you. You got to step outside and say, when is the last time I actually talked to somebody that's a $50 donor? And when is the last time that I actually talked to somebody that's benefited from our services wow. and really spend time? And so while you are on this path, don't forget to look beyond those that are naturally surrounding you and focus on those, I mean, from a research perspective, how can I not talk about just listening to people that are dealing with the challenges that you're trying to address uh, and the people that are not the biggest givers all the time. Great advice, uh, noted and heard very well. <laughs> That's uh, something for uh, food for thought for sure. Um, Derek, you could fill a library probably with lots of book recommendations. Indeed, we will link to yours for sure in this episode on in the associated show notes, but any book or two that you might lift up to our listeners uh, that you have particularly recommended for leaders like those that we're reaching? 
Yeah, so I, um, I, you know, I had a chance to look at all the other books, so I can, everything's kind of taken, of course, which are the typical and <laughs> usual. So I'm going to offer a couple ones that I think your readers should, that I spent time with. So good, one of good. them is, um, this is an uprising. Uh, it's by Mark Engler. It's great. Um, it really talks about and kind of gets to the supporter mentality that I've been discussing right, uh, in general. Right. And I think it would help to see kind of like why people do protests and riots and what the uprising really is and what that's been looking like over the course of the last five to seven years. Um, the next one is I'm always shaped, but like, again, when you listen to people, you're like, oh, where did they get some of this stuff? Right. So um, there's a book by Robert Schiller last year that came out called Narrative Economics that I love. It talks about how stories go viral and drive economic change. And it's wow. Like things like trickle down effects, right? And all this, right, like you get, right. get to like, where did that come from originally? So highly recommend. And of course, um, just just a favor when it comes to entrepreneurship and just doing things differently is obviously Leonardo da Vinci by Walter Isaacson is one of my faves. Yes. And um, and then I, I also love Samantha Power's book, which is The Education of an Idealist. She talks about her experiences. You know, she does talk about the Obama stuff that she's done, but she spends a lot of time discussing her work in the international and getting to the point where, you know, she struggled for a long time getting her book released and then it happens and, and all the stuff she learned. So those are some of my favorites for sure. Fantastic, Derek. Great resources you've uh, listed throughout our discussion. Uh, I will include them, including the exciting uh, release of your book and report coming up here in a few weeks from the time we're recording and I just want to thank you again for joining me on the path. Absolutely. And I wish everybody the best of luck as we try to navigate this new era, of course. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Derek as much as I did and came away with some really practical ideas, not just for your own personal leadership journey, but for your organization's strategy around millennials, around marketing your cause more effectively, and engaging that corporate community that you need for support. Don't forget to check out these show notes available on our website, patentmcdowell.com, where you can find out uh, everything that Derek and I discussed. Um, as always, I'm grateful if you would share this episode with somebody else on the path. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe. Just go to the podcast page also on our website, and you'll find links to all of the primary podcast platforms. Um, don't miss any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday morning, as well as monthly bonus features that come out roughly every other week. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. And keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time on The Path.